Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Sophia Ludwig. Sophia is the founding director of Expert in Mind, a company providing mental health expertise for legal proceedings based in St. Leonard's-on-Sea, East Sussex. Sophia, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to ascertain your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in, first and foremost, and just look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Um, leader for me, I the definition of that has come for me from my father. He was born in Poland in 1920 and was involved in the Second World War and was in a labour camp in Siberia and then made his way to England and had always wanted to um, train in the medical profession and actually became a doctor um, while learning English at the same time and then reached the top of his field. And for me, he achieved against all the odds and he led by example to me and proved that if you work hard, even if things seem impossible, you can always achieve them, even if in a slightly different way to how you plan, but you can always get there and you can excel in what you do, not just work in what you do, but work hard and be the best. So for me, leading by example and following his example is how I would describe a leader. And it goes to show, doesn't it, that some of the most influential leaders out there can in fact be the people who are closest to us, such as family members, teachers, mentors and colleagues. That's an important thing to remember on the whole, isn't it? And I think it's because we tend to associate leadership automatically um, in this country with the public eye, with politics, with celebrity, with sports. And that's not always the case. It's important to remember that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, I think it can be close to home. And as much as I think you can take example from different aspects of people out there that have um, the job of leading different things, as you say, such as members of parliament, etc. I think you need to look close to home because that's your way your fundamentals come from. And, you know, the foundations of how you grow and who you become as a person. And, and I think what you see in that is very important and taking that forward. And then again, influencing other people and, and showing them what's important and what can be achieved. And the reason why I asked those questions, uh, Sophia, is because leadership is something that we need now more than ever, don't we, with, of course, the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for governments, business leaders, and um, also those leaders of organisations out there to guide um, themselves through this current crisis and those that follow them as well. Um, For somebody working um, in your line of work, your profession, Sophia, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's posed some incredible challenges for yourselves as well. Um, yes, it has. It's been a huge change. And um, I mean, obviously, while recognising it, it's been a devastating time worldwide, um, the adaptations we've had to make as a business for our clients in general have actually proved to be quite positive overall. It's um, when the process was first happening to adapt to home working and whether we could homework because our work revolves around assessing clients with mental health health issues, whether that be adults, families, children. And at that time, it wasn't something that the courts allowed. But luckily, when they adapted and they said in order to keep things moving, they adapted it and said that remote assessments could take place. 
it opened the doors for that and allowed us to adapt to it. Um, one of the the most important things in our company is the is the teamwork and the personal relationships we have with each other and the team because the nature of what we deal with can be quite distressing and it's important to be able to speak to each other and support each other. So it was adapting that to see how we could continue that culture from home um, and keep the links going. But actually it has enabled us to build more relationships with clients because, for instance, our experts have more time at home now, so more time to speak and evolve as a business and how we work. So um, I would say overall it, it has been positive for us now that things are are moving and, and, and the courts have enabled that to happen. So um, I would say going forward, I can see as well that it may help because one of the things that we've found as a benefit for cases for clients can take a long time because there's many strands to pull together, assessments and paperwork, etc. But where you can, these things can happen remotely, things can happen quicker and it's made the timescales much shorter of the life of these things. And I think that has taken some pressure off the clients involved at the end of these cases. Mm. And there's been a renewed awareness hasn't there in general about the importance of mental health and well-being during this time because people have been isolated and have had to adapt to remote working seems of course yeah. that, that adaptation has gone sort of uh, really well for yourselves um, but do you think that as we sort of move into this new normal that everybody's talking about Sophia that it could become essentially a more commonplace and persistent way of working for you you could see more things being done remotely in the day-to-day running of the business I could do. There are there are aspects of it that are, are difficult. Um, for instance, the psychologists that work with us, it's, um, there are certain aspects they can't do, like uh, the cognitive assessment. Mm. You have to be in front of someone administering tests and, and you need to be in front of each other for that. Um, but from a psychiatric point of view, definitely, and from speaking to our experts as well, it has worked very well. And it's taken the stress out. Clients don't need to attend a consulting room, which can be daunting for them, especially if they're suffering with mental health issues. It's the build-up of going somewhere and knowing you're going to a hospital or a, a clinic. So being in your own home and being able to shut yourself in a room and have a, you know, a two, three-hour assessment with someone in your home, you can feel more comfortable. And I think from a mental health point of view, that's actually very positive for them. So it's, it's, it is swings and roundabouts, though, because when you're talking about children and assessing, it's difficult from an attention span point of view mm. um, to have them remotely with uh, speaking with an expert. But equally, again, can be intimidating for them to have a, a strange person come into their home asking questions or them going to a clinic or something like that. So it, it, it is a seesaw. Um, but I do, I do generally... I am swinging more to the positive on this from a from a mental health point of view for, for those involved. That's um, incredibly encouraging, of course. And um, just because there's been a great deal of debate about how clear government guidelines have been with regards to safely working during the pandemic thus far and also into the future as we move toward COVID secure premises as things begin to reopen again. I was interested to understand, Sophia, as to whether you have been satisfied that you've known what's been expected of you throughout the pandemic to date and you continue to be aware of what's required as things begin to sort of get back to some sort of normal? I think it started very well when the lockdown was implemented. It was very clear for everybody and we all knew we were, you were staying in your own place, in your own homes and, and that was it. But I do think over the last few weeks, 
it's, it's definitely been a much more cloudy picture and I feel that because of that, I feel that people are more taking it upon themselves as to what they're going to do now and whether they're going to mix with people or go out more. And I've noticed when, if I'm exercising along the seafront, for instance, people generally don't move now. And I think, I think there is definitely a lack of clarity, um, which for me, which is why we've just left it as is, everything's remote. There's, there's, I think there's a, a, a couple of face-to-face things going on based purely on the fact that those um, experts had COVID back in March and have fully recovered. And so it's allowed the aspects that can't continue remotely to continue. But other than that, I think we've taken it upon ourselves really to put our own safety first, our client safety first and our experts and just and continue until we get a more, more of a clear picture about the safety act aspect. And, and even in looking into returning to work in the office and putting screens around desks and two meter rules in place, you then happen to come across further information about having contracts for your staff that they're aware of the risk they're taking by going to work and they're aware of what you put in place for their safety and then clients visiting the building. And it's not that, for me, didn't seem to be anywhere that it was published that these are the guidelines you follow. That was just information that I happened across by speaking to other people. So I do think more of a, a detailed picture would be useful for for businesses and and for and for people in general, to be honest. And as we think about what the new normal will hold over the next year or so for yourself and for experts in mind, Sophia, what do you envision for yourself and the business, and what do you hope to achieve during that period? Um, in a way, I would like to get back to more of a more of a normal of being in the office, so that we can expand the team. Because I, over the next year, I have plans to recruit um, and expand different areas of the business. But at the minute, you can't really do that because training. I have someone that has been training remotely, but it's very very difficult when you're not sitting in front of them and they can't bounce things from you to you. Um, so. In a way, I'd like that for the sake of the business. And we have a couple of people on furlough that would be good to get them back to a working way of life. But equally, I do think it would be good if some remote working is factored in um, for the convenience of clients, the team, etc. And also for the timescales, as I mentioned earlier, reducing the, the lifespan of, of, a, of a court case. If that can be reduced, I think that can only be beneficial. And where the experts aren't traveling all around the country to see different people, they have much more time and things can happen much more quickly. And it seems to work more efficiently than it has done. So I think if that could be allowed to continue um, with um, guidelines in place and certain rules to be followed, then I think that would be very beneficial going forward. And you could actually increase work for us, for them, for solicitors, for experts and for the courts and, and, and keep things moving much more quickly. I can certainly imagine that there will be a spike in demand for mental health services, won't there, in the future, given the, the yeah. impact that this will have had on exactly that? Yes, I would I would say so. I think everyone's experience has been very different. And even in my road, you only have to look around. Some people have houses with gardens and family there's blocks of flats around so I think it's it's just appreciating how different everyone's experience has been and what they've had to cope with and if they've been ill and if family members have been ill I think that dealing with that and especially how that's happened where you haven't been able to visit and have a 
you know, a proper end of end of life conversations or cuddles or anything like that. I think that's going to be it's a, a very difficult period for people and and for them as well. It must be more more important to get back to normal so they can be around people and console themselves and deal with their mental health and and uh, I just think I think that's a that's a, that's a large aspect that's going to have a, a big effect now and and in months to come because it, as well mental health can take many months to to show itself and can show itself in different ways so I think it's going to have a big impact certainly going to be interesting to see just exactly how big that impact is over the next uh, few weeks and months and you know Sophia given how informative it's been today having you on the program to discuss these issues with us I think it would be great to catch up in the next few months just to see exactly how this develops and what exactly does change in the uh, the time between and reassess what's happened because it's all well and good of course speculating on what could occur but it's a different thing entirely actually looking back and seeing what has happened and what still needs to happen going forward absolutely yeah that would be my pleasure and it's a it's an unfolding situation and it's very interesting in a way to be a part of and to watch so um yeah that would be an absolute pleasure it would be for myself as well Sophia it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the program today with us it's a shame we don't have more time to discuss otherwise we could be going on long into the afternoon I'm sure um <laughs> but um of course most importantly until we do touch base again in future do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet that's for sure Thank you so much. And to you too, wishing you the best of health. That was Sophia Ludwig speaking, the founding director of Expert in Mind. And to echo her message to those tuning into this, do take care, do stay safe, do stay home where you can, because it really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, coming up next on the programme today, however, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, since his retirement, Sir Andrew has become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his career, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains captains who have secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also became the second highest test victory scoring England captain in history. So out of all of those England captains and the test wins that they've secured, he's second on the list of the most of them. That is quite incredible, isn't it? And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew himself. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus Tresscothic for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Tresscothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Warney got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well in a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, and when managing, 
a team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move as times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. because I Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.